0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, who were
1: the Neanderthals? Were they really ancestors of human beings? What's the best evidence for common descent? What is the best evidence against common descent? Those are just a few of the questions we're going to deal with here on this program. And my guest is going to be Dr. Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe. Uh, you probably heard of Reasons to Believe. You may have even heard of Dr. Rana. Reasons to Believe is led by Dr. Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist. But Fuzz does a lot on the biological side of apologetics. And so we're going to get to Fuzz in just a minute. But before we do, I, I got to mention something to you I haven't mentioned yet. I don't know why I haven't mentioned yet, but I, I should have. There's, there's thousands of reasons to believe that Christianity is true. And some of them are actually rooted in archaeology And what you can see and touch in ancient lands. That's why this coming April, I'm leading a Footsteps of Paul cruise to we're going to start in Rome and uh, we're going to get on a ship in Rome and take it all the way over to Athens. And along the way, we'll stop at many Greek islands. We're also obviously going to stop in Athens and Corinth, which is about an hour and a half bus ride from Athens and see those primary spots where Paul ministered and where Paul wrote. Most of his greatest works, of course, First and Second Corinthians, and the Book of Romans, are core works of the Apostle Paul. And uh, this trip I've been on before. Normally, uh, we've gone the opposite way, started in Athens, wind up in Rome. This time, we're going to start in Rome and go backwards toward Athens. And it's in uh, April. I think it begins on about April twentieth. Uh, if you want to do the pre-trip in Rome, all the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. You'll see a, a banner come up. Just click on it. It'll take you over to the organization that helps us uh, organize these amazing trips, uh, livingpassages.com, livingpassages.com. We're filling up pretty quickly. So if you want to be a part of this Footsteps of Paul Cruise this coming April, uh, go to our website, crossexamine.org or call Living Passages at 888 That's 888-771-8717. Every year for about the past three or four years, we've gone to Israel. I said this year we got to do Footsteps of Paul. By the way, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise before, but I love cruises, not only because it's just wonderful being out on the on the ocean in a big ship. It's calm. There's, You know, I'm, I'm susceptible to motion sickness, but I've never had any motion sickness on, on one of these ships. The food is amazing. And the best thing is you wake up in a new place every day and you don't have to drag your luggage anywhere. So it's just a wonderful time. Uh, So I hope you guys can join us on that Footsteps of Paul Cruz. And then in April of 2020, we plan on going to Israel again. And of course, my guide or our guide with us will be uh, Eli Shukran, the famous uh, Jewish archaeologist who I've had on the program uh, a few podcasts ago. So check that all out. Oh, let me get back to our guest now. Dr. Fuzz Rana. Fuzz is the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe, which is out centered out in California, but they have chapters all over the country. Uh, he's also the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam?, which is probably the best book you could get for the topic we're going to talk about today. He's also written a book called Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. He has a Ph.D. in, PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. He is also an adjunct adjunct professor at um, a place I'm an adjunct professor, my alma mater, Southern Evangelical Seminary here in Charlotte and uh, you're going to be teaching a class uh, this uh, January, aren't you, over here at SES?
2: Yeah, I sure am, and and what a privilege to be affiliated with SES in in any capacity. But this class is entitled Chemistry and uh, Molecular Biology, and it's part of their uh, scientific apologetics emphasis, and the goal is just to teach students a little bit of the basics of biochemistry so that they're then able to use that information to construct What I think to be some of the most powerful design arguments that we can make, which has to do with the intricacies of the the cell's chemical systems.
1: That's going to be a wonderful course, and you don't have to live in Charlotte, North Carolina to take it, ladies and gentlemen. You can take it online with Dr. Fuzz Rana. Just go to ses.edu, ses.edu, to learn more about that course. I think it's uh, it's a module in January, Fuzz, is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah, Uh, an intensive uh, week long series of lectures. Should be a lot of fun, but it will
1: be adjusting, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a lot there. But if you really want to uh, get uh, uh, up to speed on the most recent research into biology and from a, certainly from a design perspective, then you need to take this course. Now, Foz, i got so many questions for you. You know, biology is so, is, is so far above all of our heads, just the, the average person. Uh, you know, it can be very difficult topic to to know anything about and to know anything about it with authority. But you've uh, you've got degrees in this and uh, you've been uh, in on some of uh, some amazing work in this area. And you're probably your Who Was Adam would be the best book we could talk about. But let's just start at at the very beginning, because most scientists out there today, most biologists, certainly not all, but most biologists will will believe in what's called common descent that, that we descended all living things descended from some common ancestor. What do you think is the best evidence for common descent?
2: Yeah, well, you know, typically if you ask a a biologist, what is that one piece of evidence that convinces them uh, of of common descent, they would basically say it's shared biological features that organisms possess that cluster together in a natural group. And and the the way to unpack that definition is think about our arm. You know, we have in our upper arm a long bone called the humerus. In our forearm, arm, we have uh, the, the two bones, the radius and the ulna. There's wrist bones. We've got hand bones, five fingers that are formed from a number of different bones. And that design that you see is actually found in every mammal's uh, forelimbs. And so even though a whale's slipper and a horse's hoof and a human arm functionally do very different things. They're built around that same design, and, and these are called homologies or homologous designs. And so the argument is that a common ancestor must have had that design, and if that ancestor gave rise to different lineages, that design was modified uh, through evolutionary processes to create different structures that are essentially fundamentally the same design, in in essence, the same structure. And so then people apply that kind of reasoning to the genetic makeup of organisms as well, saying, well, there's shared genetic features, for example, in the, in, the, in the genomes of humans and the great apes, and so therefore those shared features reflect this common uh, evolutionary history. They reflect common descent, and when it comes to genetics, kind of the, 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 the linchpin for many people is the idea that many of those shared features are non-functional. Or at least the claim is that they're non functional. And so the question is well, why would a creator introduce non functional DNA that's identical in corresponding locations in genomes? The only way to make sense of this is that there must be, you know, we must have evolved through this idea of common descent.
1: And I remember years ago, uh, it was uh, Philip Johnson who wrote that seminal book called Darwin on Trial back in 1991. One of the first books I read on this topic, a brilliant book. And uh, I mean, a Philip uh, Johnson asked uh, through email, uh, Richard Dawkins, a question. And the question was, Dr. Dawkins, what's your best evidence for macroevolution? And he basically said what you just said there, Fuzz. He said, and I'm quoting now, the reason we know for certain that we are all related, including bacteria, is the universality of the genetic code and other biochemical fundamentals. Now he didn't add homology with regard to body structure, but uh, he's saying that the universality of the genetic code, we all have this common genetic code that points to a common ancestor, and you would add homology that we have common structure, and it seems like they, he could be right about that. That that is one possible interpretation, but is he right? And that's what we're going to talk about with Fuzz Rana right after the break. You're listening to Cross Examined. With Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website is crossexamined.org. That's examined with a D on the end of it.org. Uh, by the way, I haven't mentioned this very often either, but this podcast is on iTunes. And you could really help us out by putting a positive review on the iTunes uh, page, a five-star review. Just look for uh, cross-examined, the one with uh, my picture on it. And uh, put a positive review up there. I'm going to be reading some of the reviews in future podcasts. That'll help us out quite a bit. All right, friends. See you in a couple of minutes. Don't go away.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button. Or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks.
1: As I mentioned, friends, it would help us get the podcast that you're listening to out to many more people. Somehow in the algorithm of uh, in, in the podcast world, the more positive reviews, the higher ranking is the podcast, which means more people will see it when they do searches. That's the way I understand it anyway. I'm going uh, on the advice of my brilliant social media director, international director, Jorge Gill. He says we need some more reviews up there. Uh, Now, there's two podcasts up there, uh, two different places. Go to the one with with my picture on it and put a positive review up there, if you would, a five-star review. And as I say, I'll read some of the reviews in future shows. That would really help us get this podcast to more people. Just go to iTunes and search for Cross-Examined, the official Cross-Examined podcast, and you'll see it there. Okay, we're talking to uh, my friend, Dr. Fuzz Rana, from Reasons to Believe in... We're having a a discussion about common descent, about uh, neo-Darwinism and evolution. Is this really true? We talked about what's the best evidence for common descent in the first segment. Uh, Some will say homology, that these are, uh, we we have a a common structure, so maybe we have a a common ancestor. Also, the genetic code appears to be the same, uh, as Richard Dawkins has said. Uh, But Fuzz, I've heard that actually we don't have a common genetic code. There is a dominant genetic code, but I think... Biologists have discovered many different genetic codes. Is that is that true? I've, I've, I've read that somewhere.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there is what you know is oftentimes referred to as the universal genetic code, and there are slight deviants of that genetic code or, or, uh, that usually are different in real, some really small, subtle ways, mm-hmm. and so they're referred to as non-universal codes, but they really are kind of uh, limited derivations of the of the of the um, canonical or the universal genetic code.
1: So that would still feed into the narrative that there's basically one genetic code and there are some variants that that come off of that, but if you want to interpret the evidence for a common ancestor from the genetic code and homology, you could do that. That's a fair interpretation, correct? Oh, I
2: think so. I think it is a fair interpretation. So for people to say that they embrace common descent, they're not being intellectually unreasonable. In fact, you could say that this is really strong evidence for common descent.
1: But isn't there another possible interpretation as evidence that maybe folks who are philosophically disinclined to consider intelligence have already ruled out before they've even looked at the evidence?
2: Yeah, well, you know, as they say in the philosophy of science, uh, data uh, theories are underdetermined by data, and what that means is basically this: is that it's very rare that a a, a theory can be uh, or that data can be explained exclusively by a single theory. And so, it's possible that there are other ways to interpret these shared features, and one of them is instead of it being common descent, it's actually common design. Mm. Uh, that is, if you think of a mind that would create life on Earth, that that mind would create life according to a common set of design principles, common set of building blocks, and would this simply then vary the way those building blocks are used to create an array of different organisms. And in fact, this idea, which is sometimes called archetype biology, is actually the, the, the way people saw Uh, shared biological features prior to Darwin. There was a famous uh, biologist in the United Kingdom named Sir Richard Owen, who in his day was considered to be the preeminent scientist in the United Kingdom. He's the father of comparative anatomy. He was the one that coined the term dinosaur. He established the modern-day natural history museums. He was a, a, a legendary scientist who played a big role in understanding homology and He basically argued, well, these reflect a common set of design principles employed by that first cause. So he saw homologies as evidence for common design. And when Darwin came along, Darwin basically co-opted Owen's ideas and reinterpreted them as that, that archetype now became a common ancestor. And the appeal of Darwin wasn't so much that The evidence was in favor of Darwin, and contrary to Owen's view, it was rather that Darwin was proposing a mechanism for how these shared features would arise, whereas Owen was thinking about this in a design framework, and there was such strong pressure to move biology towards mechanism that that was what really propelled Darwin to prominence, and his ideas to prominence, and caused people to abandon you know this idea of common
1: design. As we said many times in this program, ladies and gentlemen, science doesn't say anything scientists do. And here's a clear example of this: you've got two different scientists coming to different conclusions based on the same evidence. Why? Because you could interpret common, uh, or you, you could interpret interpret the common genetic code and uh, homology as evidence of common descent, but you could equally interpret that evidence as uh, pointing toward common design, a common creator, a common designer. Now, Fuzz, given that you could equally, you could go either way if you're open philosophically to intelligence, you could go either way on this. What is the best evidence against common descent? I mean, is there some way of breaking sort of the tie here to say, well, no, the evidence points better toward, toward common, um, a common creator or common designer that it does common descent.
2: Yeah, well, you know, in, in a sense, this is a really big question. But, but to me, you know, basically when you're arguing that mechanism explains what we see in biology, then you you have to say that that, that mechanism has to account for everything, the origin of life, the design of life, and, and the history and the diversity of life. And the fact of the matter is, uh, when you look at uh, evolutionary theory, Today, evolutionary theory struggles to explain what I would say the major transitions in the origin and the history of life, which include the origin of life itself, uh, the origin of what are called complex cells or eukaryotic cells, the origin of body plans, uh, which is the origin really of of complex animals, and, and the list goes on and on. In fact, every place you see what would be considered to be key transitions in the history of life, there really are not explanations for them. So this idea of evolution being able to account for everything really begins to unravel when you look at the big picture. Uh, And in fact, every place where evolution struggles to explain uh, these key transitions are places, when we look at the history of life, and particularly the fossil record, where um, where the origin of life, origin of eukaryotic cells, the origin of body plant, happens explosively without any kind of real intermediate forms documenting that, that explosive appearance. And to me, that explosive appearance looks a lot like a creation event. But then on top of that, I don't think that there right now is really what I would say a viable mechanism to explain, uh, uh, again, many of these transitions that we see in the history of life. The mechanisms that we have available, primarily natural selection, can explain things like microevolution and speciation, variation that would happen within species, but it really struggles to explain the emergence of biological novelty and the emergence of major groups. And so I think you you are well justified scientifically and intellectually to question this idea of common descent from the science alone.
1: Mm. You know, uh, back two years ago, it was January of 2017, I had Stephen Meyer and Doug Axe on the program. We had a program called Five Royal Problems with Macroevolution, and this was on the heels of the Royal Society meeting over there in the UK in November of 2016, where a bunch of evolutionists got together and said, There's a problem with the neo Darwinian mechanism we have. We've got to find a new mechanism because it doesn't work. Um, and we went through these five problems uh, they included what you just mentioned fuzz uh, the fossil record doesn't line up with what they said or what what uh, neo darwinianism neo darwinianism easy for me to say um, says you know that there's this gradualism there there's no gradualism in the fossil record it doesn't appear to be anyway there's also irreducible complexity there's genetic limits to change there's the origin of genetic information to begin with and the origin of genetic information from new life forms there's also epigenetic information for those that want details on this from from uh, dr meyer and dr axe they can just listen to that podcast it's called five royal problems with macroevolution and some of the things that fuzz is saying right here um do you happen to know fuzz what whatever came out of that meeting two years ago uh that these evolutionists came together and said yeah we got a problem here we got to come up with a new mechanism a new naturalistic mechanism. Apparently, have, have have they gotten anywhere? Do you know?
2: Well, uh, no, I don't think that anybody's gotten anywhere towards that end. But it is interesting because when you look at the scientific literature, particularly the evolutionary biology literature, there is a raging debate going on right now among scientists about just really the shortcomings or the, the shortfall of the evolutionary paradigm. And to me, I think this is a, rather significant because. Behind closed doors, these scientists very readily acknowledge that evolutionary theory is incomplete, yet when you have students going into a classroom setting, you'll hear statements like the statement made by the famous Russian geneticist, Theodosius Dobzhensky, you know, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. And, and yet, that's not that statement is not true, <laughs> because if it was true, you wouldn't see this kind of debate taking place about whether or not you know evolutionary mechanisms are capable of accounting for uh, you know key transitions in life's history. Uh, one key event is the Cambrian explosion, where we see the first appearance of animal complex animal forms in the history of life on Earth. And, and these animal forms just show up explosively again with really virtually no evolutionary history preceding them. This is one of the greatest conundrums in, in, in evolutionary biology, and in fact, um, there's a classic textbook called The Cambrian Explosion, written by Jim Valentine and Doug Erwin, two of the world's experts on the origin of body plans, and they basically conclude evolutionary theory as it currently stands can't explain the Cambrian Explosion, and they're, they're, they're calling for uh, more work, that, that evolutionary theory needs to be expanded. But they don't give any kind of prescription as to how that expansion should take place. So, so even if somebody doesn't have that technical know-how to to assess evolution, just simply looking at these kind of debates should say to you that 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 maybe evolution isn't the whole story when it comes to uh, this idea of common descent.
1: We're talking to Dr. Fuzz Rana. His book, Who Was Adam?, is probably the best book you can get uh, on the issues we're talking about right now. So if you want to learn more than what we could cover here in a 48-minute radio program, then get Who Was Adam?, and go to Reasons to Believe uh, and check out what they have up there on the web. As you know, Reasons to Believe is uh, led by uh, Dr. Hugh Ross and his colleague, Dr. Fasrana, my guest today. I'm Frank Turek. More on who was Neanderthal man right after the break? So don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this... We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Ladies and gentlemen, even the simplest life forms have the information content of millions of letters in their genome. That's basically their software program. And in your 40 trillion or so cells, in each one of your cells, of your body, there's a software program that's 3.2 billion letters long. Now, in all our prior experience, whenever we see a software program, we always know there's got to be a programmer. Where there's a code, there's got to be a coder. But let me ask Dr. Fuzz Rana here Fuzz, what evolutionary scientists seriously respond with a natural explanation for the origin of this kind of information in living things?
2: Well, I mean, the, the only mechanism that you have is that somehow natural selection could take, you know, some kind of molecule that contains, you know, information and through natural selection begin to vary the, the sequence of those genetic letters that make up the DNA uh, and in that process of doing so, uh, create systems that, that have functional utility. But that, that, that mechanism just simply will not work on the early on the conditions of the early Earth. And so, to me, there's not a, a viable mechanism that could contribute uh, to the origin of life when you consider the conditions of the early Earth. And, and as you're pointing out, the information content, even in the simplest organisms, is extraordinarily massive in scope. And in fact, I would actually argue that the amount of information that we see goes far beyond what you would calculate just simply on the basis of the sequence combinations that would be possible for, you know, let's say a, a, a protein that's 100 amino acids in length, one way you would calculate the information content is what is the probability of producing that sequence. The, the lower the probability, the greater the amount of information. But that really doesn't tell you the whole story because there's even much more information in that, in that protein and just simply the sequence, the way that that protein folds in space is actually information as well that is very difficult to quantify, but is yet critical to the, the way that that protein functions. Uh, but, but to me, what's perhaps most mind-boggling is it's not just simply the massive amount of information that we see, but it's the way that that information is structured and manipulated inside a cell. It's structured in the same way that we would structure information uh, in human language. In fact, um, a, a famous uh, information theorist uh, by the name of Bernard Oliver kiefer basically wrote a book a number of years ago on information and the origin of life, and he argued that that the information structure in the cell is identical to human language, and that really is theory. Or, or you see that uh, people... That studying um, uh, computer science will point out that the way that the cell's machinery manipulates that information literally is the same way that a computer system functions at its most basic uh, basic level. In fact, that sim- similarity is so stark that it has given rise to a, a, an area of nanotechnology called DNA computing, where people are building computers inside test tubes in the lab from DNA and and the cell's machinery that manipulates DNA. And these computers are more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer system that we've ever built using uh, silicon-based technology. So stuff like that just takes the whole idea of information as an argument for design to the next level, in my mind, because it's not only that we're seeing information, but that information exactly the way that we would structure it and exactly the way that we would manipulate it, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing and it's almost eerie in some respects.
1: So actually, we are studying biological systems because we can't build such a system with all our intelligence as intricate and as complex as the biological systems that already exist. Is this called biomimetics? Do I have that pronunciation right, Fuzz?
2: <laughs> yes, you do. And, and, you know, Frank, you bring up biomimetics. And, and to me, that, that whole area, coupled with uh, what's called synthetic biology, where people are trying to create artificial cells in the lab or trying mm-hmm. to, to genetically engineer new life forms from existing life forms, are arenas where we have, I think, opportunities to make completely brand new design arguments. Uh, and here, like with synthetic biology, when you look at how hard it is to create an artificial, uh, an artificial cell-like structure uh, just from, from molecules, trying to assemble them, you've got the best minds in the world using these very sophisticated and elaborate strategies <laughs> predicated on 200 years of, of scientific knowledge. And they struggle to even come close to representing uh, or, 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 or sorry, replicating anything that would look like Life in its most simplest form, and what they're showing is intelligent agency right. to, to turn chemicals into self. and And biomimetics is again making that same kind of argument, where it's highlighting just how elegant the designs are in biology. Uh, given how you know how um, often scientists will turn to those designs, that to me is really provocative and, and represents another design.
1: Argument. Yeah, if scientists ever somehow create life in the lab, it'll actually prove creation. Why? Because it it took a lot of intelligence to do it. (laughs) That's why they think it happens by some sort of natural process. And by the way, even if a natural process could bring life into existence, the very process, the very natural laws that are out there, friends, are created and guided by an intelligence. Otherwise, you wouldn't have laws. Laws come from lawgivers. So the very natural laws that even scientists are punting to, oh, natural laws did it presuppose some kind of intelligence behind them. But that's a whole nother topic. Now we're getting into what your colleague Yu Ross does when he talks about the fine tuning of the universe, the fine tuning of the natural laws that are out there. That's a whole nother topic we could go down. It seems like we have layer after layer of design arguments here, Fuzz. But I want to go back to something you said at the very top of this very top of this uh, segment here. You said that the atheistic explanation is that natural selection could work on an existing code and maybe produce a, you know, a new program. That seems to create a couple of problems. One is in order for natural selection to select anything, there's got to be something to select. (laughs) And number two, I would think if you started to mutate any code, like say Microsoft Word, which I'm looking at right now on my computer, if you began to randomly mutate it, it would, it would immediately degrade. Could you unpack that for us?
2: Yeah, well, and, and you know, and that, that's a really powerful point, you know, because let's say, hypothetically, natural selection could evolve some kind of functional biomolecule. Well, that biomolecule in and of itself isn't going to contribute to life if there's not a whole ensemble of other biomolecules that are interacting collaboratively to create the complexity needs to to, to, to uh, support even the simplest form. So you can't. You have to have it all coming together at once. You can't have it come together in a piecemeal fashion, uh, because if uh, even if you have can somehow generate a functional system in and of itself, it's got to be networked or integrated into a much larger system mm. for it to even be of use to anything. And and this is, I think, the the, the real the, the real uh, one that ultimately faces, you know, the original life question is, how do you create that kind of irreducible complexity at a cellular level? There's just no way to do it uh, through the mechanisms that we have.
1: Well, to his credit, at least Richard Dawkins admitted nobody from a naturalistic perspective knows how original life began, the first life uh, began anyway. So at least he's honest about that. And, And as you've pointed out here, it does not appear that there are any natural mechanisms even to create subsequent life forms. So how much do you think that the macroevolutionary viewpoint is based on a philosophical presupposition fuzz that intelligent intelligence is ruled out from the beginning? In other words, when they, they when they rule out intelligence, the only possible interpretation they're left with is some kind of natural evolutionary cause. Well, you know, uh, I
2: think, I think at the end of the day, it, the evolutionary paradigm is held up by philosophical commitments more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. And what really opened my eyes to this, you mentioned uh, Philip Johnson uh, in, in one of the earlier segments, his book, Darwin on Trial, and then his follow-up book, Reason in the Balance, were eye-opening to me as somebody who was trained as a scientist. Because when you're trained as a scientist, I like to say you're you're very well trained but poorly educated. Hmm. You don't spend any time studying the philosophy or the history of science. And so what, what you learn is essentially that in, in science, you only appeal to mechanism to explain everything in science. You can't appeal to the work of an intelligent agent. And most students of science just simply accept that idea. Hmm. That's called methodological naturalism. That right. The only explanation allowed is, is again, a mechanistic one. But what you've done is you've ruled out intelligent design or any explanation involving the work of a mind. And so, and, and so by definition, the only explanation you have are evolutionary explanations that even if they don't work, if they fall, if they come short, you don't have any other options. So mm-hmm. by definition, it has to be evolution. And this is a, a point that's so critical, I think, for young people to understand when they go into a this classroom is that philosophy is really uh, uh, very important to understanding the operation of science. And if you don't understand that, you, you can easily be uh, convinced that the case for evolution is open and shut, when in fact it's not, and it's philosophy holding it up.
1: Well, friends, we got to make a distinction right here that um, is critical, because if you ever suggest that there's an intelligent designer behind anything in biology, they're going to accuse you of committing the God of the gaps fallacy. In other words, they're going to say, well, you're just putting a you're putting God in the gap of your knowledge. One day we're going to figure out a natural cause for this. You know, years ago, we used to think, well, maybe the gods are mad at us. So they're they're raining down thunder and lightning on us. And we later learned, no, it's kind of a natural cause, thunder and lightning. So we look bad by plugging God into the gap of our knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not what Ron is doing here or any other intelligent design scientists. We're not plugging God into the gap of our knowledge. We're not arguing from what we don't know. We're arguing from what we do know. When we see um, thousands or millions of volumes of an encyclopedia of information in the smallest living thing and every living thing, when we see in your cells 3.2 billion letters long, a software program that long It's not just that we lack a natural explanation for that. It's that we have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause. I mean, if you see John loves loves Mary in the sand on the beach, you don't just lack a natural explanation for that. You don't go, well, let me give science more time. We'll figure out a natural, natural explanation. We say, no, that's positive evidence for an intelligent being. And that's what's going on here. The problem is naturalistic scientists have ruled that out from the get go. So the only game in town for them is some sort of naturalistic mechanism. Is that sufficient? It doesn't appear to be. Uh, I said we'd get to Neanderthals in the last segment. Well, we're going to definitely get into it in the la- get get to Neanderthals in the last segment. So don't go away. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Dr. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe. We're back in two minutes. Don't go.
0: If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Neanderthals!
1: Who were they? Were they pre-human? Were they a different species completely? Do we have any evidence? How do we how do we discover who these people were? You're listening to cross-examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. My guest who's very qualified to talk about this is Dr. Fuz Rana of reasons to believe uh you can go to reasons.org to learn more about fuzz and his colleague dr hugh ross and uh, the best book on the topic that you can get is by uh fuzz rana and hugh ross it's called who was adam so let me just ask you directly fuzz who were the neanderthals were they were they pre-human who who were these people or were they not people who were they
2: well you know there's no topic that's more controversial (laughs) Than who the Neanderthals were. I mean, they, they were these. No, Trump that- is
1: more controversial. Okay, I, I'll say Trump is. Okay, after <laughs> okay, Trump, but- Neanderthals. Okay, go ahead.
2: <laughs> there, there we go. Right. <laughs> Some will say. Well, I won't go there. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but there are these these creatures that are referred to as hominins by uh, by evolutionary biologists that mm-hmm. live that appear oh about two hundred thousand years ago in the fossil record and disappear, oh, roughly about 40,000 years ago. They lived primarily in Europe and in Asia, parts of the Middle East, and traditionally they've been viewed as being these evolutionary predecessors to, to human beings, to modern humans, but now evolutionary biologists argue that they they didn't evolve into humans. They're considered to be an evolutionary side branch or an evolutionary dead end. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now for Christians, how do you make sense of Neanderthals? And there's all kinds of ideas that people have. Some would say, well, you know, Neanderthals are just simply humans. They're descendants of Adam and Eve. Uh, Others would say, and this is the view that I would hold, is that they were creatures that were created by God that existed and then, then disappeared. That they had, you know, some limited intelligence and some limited emotional capacity but that they were really different from us uh, in, in that they lacked the image of God and, and the the mental or the, the brain structures that would support, if you will, the image of God behavior. So the way we view them is that these are creatures that existed. To an extent, they were created by God. They're not evolutionary predecessors to humans. So I would think of them in the same way that I would think of chimpanzees, orangutans, or gorillas fascinating creatures that were part of God's handiwork, that have some resemblance to human beings, but also some very important differences. And so they're just part of God's creation. So that's how, as an older creationists, I would, would look at Neanderthals.
1: Now, you hear, or I've heard anyway, that Neanderthal DNA is, is in human DNA as if they were interbreeding at some point. Is that true? Can, can that be determined definitively? What's, what's the issue here?
2: Well, that's become kind of the orthodoxy among evolutionary biologists that work on the question of human origins. Uh, there, there is some evidence that suggests that, that there is Neanderthal DNA in our genome that would have been introduced through what are called interbreeding events. When humans began to migrate around the world and encountered Neanderthals, the their, their claim is there was interbreeding that took place that introduced the, this DNA into the human gene pool. Uh, but there are other things that, that, to me, don't quite fit that, that storyline. So at this point, my, I'm kind of holding that as an open question scientifically. Was there interbreeding or not between humans and Neanderthals? Uh, and so it's, it's, it's not, an open, in my mind, an open and shut case, uh, but it's really, uh, uh, you know, I think um, something that, that people will hear because it has become so prominent within the scientific community. Now, if there was interbreeding, I think, you know, it raises probably some sticky theological issues for my particular view of Neanderthals, to be frank, but I don't think it necessarily undermines the biblical account of, of human origins. It, it might make certain perspectives on that account untenable, but it doesn't undermine the biblical account of human origins, I think, in any way.
1: Now there was an article recently um, on the in the popular press. I saw it. I, it was on Fox News. I think it was on a New York a New York Post. Maybe it, it made its way around. And the article had something to do with saying that um, that DNA evidence shows that all human beings resulted from two parents an Adam and Eve. However, some scientists are saying that the study was bad and that it has been misinterpreted. What is the truth? Does where does what does the evidence show? Are we descended from two parents or not?
2: Well, I mean, this particular study that, that got quite a bit of, of airplay uh, is indeed controversial. And, and in, in many respects, as, as um, again, as much exposure as that study got, it really isn't necessarily, it doesn't really matter if, if it's a valid study or not, because there are a whole ensemble of other studies that are considered to be valid, that indicate really provocatively that when you look at a genetic marker called mitochondrial DNA, every person on the planet traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that many scientists think corresponds to a single female individual that they've dubbed mitochondrial Eve in the scientific literature. And with regard to the Y-chromosomal genetic marker, uh, every man on the planet traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that many people, again, think corresponds to a single male dubbed Y-chromosome Adam, And so this is really a provocative idea that there is a male and a female that uh, every person on the planet can, in effect, trace an origin back to. And this is now, I think, raising the possibility that maybe mitochondrial Eve and y chromosomal Adam are, in some respects, pointers uh, to, the, to the biblical Adam and the biblical Eve.
1: Now, is there an article on the Reasons to Believe website, Reasons.org, that can lay this out in a way that laypeople can understand?
2: Yes, there's a, a, a few articles on the, our website that deal with this question. One of them is entitled, Were They Real?, uh, and it essentially is summarizing uh, what, what, what I just described. And if people really want to dig into the details of, of, this, of this idea— uh, I would commend my book, uh, Who Was Adam?, uh, because we have a number of chapters where we kind of get into the nitty-gritty details and even talk about how evolutionary biologists propose uh, a, an alternative interpretation to mitochondrial Eve and why chromosomal Adam and why we think that alternative explanation isn't as robust as one that, that sees them as somehow suggestive of the biblical Adam and the biblical Eve.
1: I want to go back to something you said at the top of the program. I forgot to mention it when you brought it up. Uh, You were saying that one of the reasons that scientists believe in common descent is because there's a lot of um, what I guess has been recently called junk DNA in the genome that it appears to have no function. But we've, in fact, Francis Collins' book back in 2006, uh, Language of God, really trumpeted this Trump DNA as evidence for common descent. You know why? they're, They're actually making a theological point. Well, why would a good God put all this unnecessary uh, junk in our DNA. I mean, if he was really a designer, he, would, he wouldn't he would have, there wouldn't all this junk, this junk wouldn't be in there. There'd be function there. But what have we learned since 2006, Fuzz? We've learned that there really is no such thing as junk DNA, correct?
2: That's exactly right. And this is, to me, one of the greatest triumphs of intelligent design or of a creationist you know, framework, because virtually every ID proponent, every creationist, regardless of, whether they were young Earth or Earth species, made predictions uh, that the so-called junk DNA would one day turn out to be functional. And mm-hmm. in fact, here we are uh, probably 15, 20 years later from when many of these predictions were initially made, and in fact, those predictions have come true. Virtually every class of so-called junk DNA is, is uh, now known to be functional. When we look at the results of what's called the ENCODE project, which was phase two results were published in 2012, they argued that at minimum 80% of the human genome is biochemically active, and that activity looks like it's actually functional. So we're looking at data that says maybe most of the human genome is actually functional. And so mm-hmm. th- there's a revolution that's happened in how we view genomes from being a wasteland of junk to actually these incredibly sophisticated systems that are far more complex than we could have ever imagined, that were really only on in our infancy in terms of understanding. And so what was this very difficult problem for intelligent design and creationism has completely flip-flopped into what I think to be perhaps the most compelling evidence to think that the human genome is really the, the handiwork of, a, of a, a mind, of a creator.
1: You know, it's interesting, too, that the Darwinists have always said that intelligent design is a science stopper. If you just arrive at an intelligent designer, you give up on science, you don't do any more research. Here's an instance, however, Fuzz, where exactly the opposite was the case. It were the Darwinists who stopped research into the into the 98% of the genome they thought had no function. It was the intelligent design people who said, no, we think it has function. And it turns out that the, the non-coding regions, as you well know, actually... Uh, have implications for cancer research. In other words, intelligent design people were able to go in there because they're they're intellectually curious. They're going. We think this has function. They found function in there, and they may find a way to turn off cancer cells at some point by going into the non-coding regions and turning off certain aspects of biology or certain aspects of uh, of of, uh, of cancer cells. So. I think it's exactly the opposite to what the, the Darwinists have said. The science stoppers are the Darwinists because they just give up looking for intelligence.
2: Yeah, and that's an incredibly important point. And, you know, I would even go one step further that, that the evolutionary framework promotes a view of biological systems as being inherently, reality, as mm-hmm. being essentially poor designs. And so it's just with junk DNA that you see this, that, so often when there is a feature in biology that we don't quite understand or doesn't initially make a lot of sense, people just basically say, well, that's just a vestige of an evolutionary process. It's just a poorly designed system. And then they stop studying it. There you and go. More, and then time and time again, when people, you know, stu- people don't, they stumble upon function, not because of it.
1: Hey, Fuzz, this has been great. I'm sorry we're out of time, but people need to get your book, Who Was Adam, by Dr. Fuzz Rana, R-A-N-A, with uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, to, to learn more. Fuzz, thanks for being on the show.
2: Frank, thanks for having me.
1: That's Fuzz Rana, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Frank Turek. Great being with you. I'll see you here next week. God bless.
0: We work hard to create great content and delivered truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners if you agree take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us just look for the cross-examined official podcast three words on itunes google play or stitcher we are truly grateful for your support